everyone, and welcome to The Low Bar, where we get together, grab a drink, and talk about true crime. Tonight, I'm drinking Ecstasy of Gold by Widowmaker Brewing of Braintree, Massachusetts. It's an IPA, and it's absolutely delicious. It's also one that they seem to reliably have available, uh, whether on tap or in drop cans. Um, either way, it's easy for you to get um, if you're local. I don't know how far out they distribute. Um, I'll be honest here, Widowmaker does IPAs really, really well. Um, my husband prefers beers that aren't IPAs, and he says that they do those well too. Uh, but um, what makes them stand out is their IPAs. Um, that's probably why they're my favorite local brewery, and it's got nothing to do with being next to the hockey equipment store. Um, Spouse prefers to go to Barrel House Z, even though they're not next to the hockey store, um, because they do some amazing things with non-IPAs. Um, for the record, we would usually be going to the hockey store to get equipment for my daughter, and I hate to shop. So, you know, he and my daughter go into the hockey store, I stop in at the brewery, and we're, everybody's happy. Um... I'm very happy to go to Widow to uh, Barrel House Z2, don't get me wrong, um, but Widowmaker is really where it's at for me. Um, if you're not into alcohol, please don't feel pressured. The low bar is about companionship over a shared interest, not getting smashed. So belly up to the bar, pour yourself a drink, whether it's hard or soft, and let's get down to business, because today we've got a doozy. Tonight we're going to, we're going back to the 80s back to when hair was big, clothes were neon, and masculinity was defined by hairspray, eyeliner, lipstick, and spandex. We'll be opening the books on the Connecticut River Valley Killer, another unsolved case, and one that honestly should probably have us all feeling a little bit less secure in our beds, even almost 40 years later. All right. We're going to dive into the Connecticut River Valley Killer, um, but first we have to talk about Gary Schaefer. Why? Well, for one thing, he was also a serial killer who was doing his thing in the same area. Um, and as we go on throughout the night, you're going to see a couple of very interesting parallels to our still unknown killer. Um, but it wasn't Gary Schaefer. Uh, for, for another reason, um, Gary Schaefer was arrested and jailed just before our main subject tonight got started. Uh, we have very good records of where he is at all times, and um, while we don't know for sure who the Connecticut River Valley Killer was, we know who he wasn't, and that's Gary Schaefer. Uh, Gary was a bit of a loner but he had been raised to be one. He was raised in a very small, strictly fundamentalist church by a parent who wanted to minimize their child's exposure to the sinful outside world. And it's really very easy to sit here and um, be judgmental about that. Because no, that's not going to survive first contact with, say, turning 18 <laughs> and getting out of the house and having to get a job. Um, 
But at the same time, I can also be very sympathetic to a parent's desire to kind of keep their child away from all of the the things that might hurt them. Um, I know that that's not going to work, but I can understand that desire very, very well. So, um, unfortunately for Shaver's parental unit, um, Gary turned out to be one of the things that you try to hide your child from. Um, his first documented trouble with authority came during his time in the Navy, where he was charged with arson and possession of illegal drugs. Uh, notice how I say documented, because people don't usually just get up and running with arson. <laughs> You know, I my notes don't say if he if there were rumors of him doing anything inappropriate before that, but again, people don't usually just start off starting fires on a Navy vessel. Um, after his court martial, the Navy no longer required his services. Boy, I can't imagine why. Um, and he was released into civilian life to. Do whatever he was going to do and in 1979 that included abducting sexually assaulting and murdering 13 year old sherry nastasia of springfield vermont in 1981 teresa fenton suffered the same fate um, a 17 year old girl was assaulted by him in 1982 uh, but she escaped, and we'll get to that in a second. Um, and then, not long after that, he abducted, assaulted, and murdered Catherine Richards, who was closer to the age of his usual preferred victim. Um, the surviving victim was 17. She was older than his other victims. Um, he picked her up while hitchhiking. And it's really easy for us as modern people to say, well, she was hitchhiking. I mean, talk about high risk. We're not, the reason that we think of that as high risk today is because the media has very helpfully publicized the horrors that happened to people who were hitchhiking back in the day. Um, and I'm not being tongue-in-cheek when I say helpfully, because that that is a very high-risk activity. And in earlier times, when bad things happened to people, it just, you know, it was kept very quiet, very hush-hush. But Eventually, it became more acceptable to mention that these crimes were happening, and now we know not to hitchhike. In these days, when these crimes were happening, it was still very common practice to hitchhike. Um, a lot of people in the area didn't have cars. Uh, this was a, a higher poverty area, so people would hitchhike to get to work. 
you know, the hitchhiking was a valid mode of transportation at this time. So let's not cast stones at this girl for hitchhiking. Um, her name is known and it has been publicized. Um, it is in my notes and I have had to record this four times because I keep on slipping up and using it. Uh, I am trying not to use her name because she is a survivor of sexual assault and best practices in media say you don't use their names unless you have like their permission. Um, I, I have not been given her permission and so I'm trying not to use it. Um, this girl was very savvy, extremely quick-witted. She stayed alert the entire time and took multiple opportunities to try to get help. Her first attempt to get help failed. This would have been extremely demoralizing, but she kept trying and she finally succeeded and got away from this guy. Um, I'm not bringing this up to make anyone else feel bad about not having managed to do what she did or about their loved ones not having managed to do what she did. What she did was extraordinary and she deserves all of the praise for it. Um, she may have also picked up on opportunities that didn't even present themselves to these other girls. Um, nobody else should compare their experience to hers. Um, she, again, she also stands out among Schaefer's victims in that she was significantly older and had life experiences that the others couldn't be expected to draw on. Um, I cannot imagine what the families of these children went through, not during the long years of waiting for some kind of answers and not during the trial and not during the time when the Connecticut River Valley killer was active. I can't imagine being this girl either. Survivor's guilt is a real thing, and the fact that Schaefer killed again even after she put herself through making a police report, which is not easy if you have gone through that, it would have been difficult at best to see that he killed again. And I'd hate to be one of the investigators. I'm not a thin blue line person by any stretch of the imagination, but I can definitely appreciate the frustration that they must have felt, especially when they had a viable suspect and were tr struggling to prove it in a way that would hold up in court. Uh, that's the kind of conflict that really tears at the soul. Um, and honestly, it's one of the reasons that I do tend to write about cops because it's just gift wrapped conflict for you. Um, in the end, it was Schaefer's religious background that brought him in. Uh, the mother of one of his victims, who is also deep, deeply religious, although not part of his church, uh, wrote an open letter to her daughter's killer urging him to confess his sins, and apparently that worked. Uh, Schaefer was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in custody. He is currently, I think, 69 years old and still in prison although he was transferred to an out-of-state prison at some point in the course of his sentence. He has not been released. His maximum release date is November 17th, 2183. Uh, so if you want to set up shop and like keep a watch 
or something. This is according to the Vermont Department of Corrections inmate tracker. Um, he was booked into the Department of Corrections on January 6th, 1984. And it wasn't long after that before more killings started, but we know where he was. Um, he wasn't the Connecticut River Valley killer, but the people living in the area were already traumatized by Schaefer's actions. And it certainly is possible that our guy may have been influenced by Schaefer's work. Bernice Kudermarsh, and yes, that is how it's pronounced by the family according to the Ginsburg book, Ginsburg book um, was last seen on May 30th, 1984. Uh, remember, this is five months after Schaefer went to prison. She was 16. She lived with her boyfriend and his family. She worked as a nurse's aide while attending school. She didn't have a car or a license, but was looking forward to getting her driver's license soon. Her remains were found in April of 1986. Forensic, forensic examination showed knife wounds to the neck and head. On July 20th, 1984, 27-year-old Ellen Freed, a nurse at Valley Regional Hospital in Claremont, disappeared immediately following a late-night call with her sister. Ellen didn't have a phone in her apartment, so she made use of payphones. For the very young, these were phones you paid for with quarters. They were gross. They smelled like other people's halitosis. Moving on. Her remains were found in a wooded area in Kellyville in September. Despite the amount of time that had passed, there was still enough evidence to diagnose stab wounds and probable sexual assault. Ellen did remark on a strange car she'd seen while she was on the phone. It concerned her enough that she made sure her car was running, was still running while she was speaking to her sister. On July 10th, 1985, Eva Morse was last seen hitchhiking near Claremont. Um, as I mentioned, hitchhiking was a common mode of transportation. Eva didn't have a car. Um, this is how she got to work. Eva's disappearance didn't get as much attention as it might have at first, as Eva spent time with a crowd seen by others as irresponsible. But those who knew her insisted she would never abandon her daughter. Her body was found in 1986 near Unity, New Hampshire, very near where another possible victim was dumped. And yes, we'll get to that. On April 15, 1986, 36-year-old Linda Moore was found dead in the home by her husband in Saxton Res Saxton's River, Vermont, not far from Springfield, where Schaefer did his thing. This is a significant departure from the usual pattern in which the victims are dumped in remote wooded areas and not found for months or years. It was obvious that a struggle had taken place, and what was more, witnesses saw a suspect leaving the house. They were able to give police enough information to give a composite, composite sketch. There were still multiple stab wounds. On January 10th, 1987, Barbara Agnew, 38, was last seen returning from a ski trip with friends. Uh, this is another nurse, by the way. That evening, a snowplow driver found her green BMW at a rest stop abandoned. 
there was blood on the steering wheel. Her body was found near an apple tree in Heartland, Vermont, in March of 1987. She had been stabbed to death. There are a few others who've, whose deaths have been linked to the Connecticut River Valley Killer, but don't fit so neatly into the killer's defined operating structure. Kathy Milliken, 27, was stabbed to death in New, Ham in New London, New Hampshire. While this fits into the M.O. of our killer, she was killed in 1978, which is well before the killing was assigned to the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Cold case unit detectives in New Hampshire do not believe her death is connected to the serial killings, but her murder remains unsolved, or at least it did as of um, 2000, uh, 2020. Mary Elizabeth Critchley, 37, was a University of Vermont student. She disappeared from I-91 at the Massachusetts border, uh, Massachusetts-Vermont border, while hitchhiking in July 1981, and her remains were found in early August of that year. Her murder is often linked to the Connecticut River Valley killer, but it takes place several years before that killer became active, and the medical examiner was unable to determine a cause of death. Um, as we know, the Connecticut River Valley killer prefers stabbing, and um, stabbing usually leaves marks, distinctive marks on the bones. Um, it's possible if he only went for the soft parts, kind of in the ab in the abdominal area, he might not get bone, but um, he's generally left marks on his victim's bones. Joanne Dunham, 14, was sexually assaulted and strangled on June 11, 1968, in Charlestown, New Hampshire, and she has been tangentially linked to the canonical killings on the basics basis of geographic proximity. Um, this is well outside the time period during which the Connecticut River Valley Killer was active, <clears throat> and the Connecticut River Valley Killer didn't strangle his victims. Um, also, I don't believe that he generally went after children that young. On October 5th, 1982, 76-year-old Sylvia Gray was found bludgeoned and stabbed to death in a wooded area a few hundred yards from her home in Plainfield, New Hampshire, a day after having been re reported missing. Sylvia is still a little early for our killer, and she falls well outside the age range of our killer's prevalence. While there are some killers who do vary their targets, most have an age range at least in which they hunt. Some can be even more specific, seeking out blondes or males with blue shirts or whatever. 36, sorry, 38-year-old Stephen Hill was last seen on June 20th, 1986, retrieving his paycheck from his Lebanon, New Hampshire employer. <coughs> Excuse me. On July 15th, Hill's body was found with multiple stab wounds in Heartland, across the Connecticut River from where Gray's body had been found four years earlier. Stephen's murder falls within our period, and he falls within our age range, if on the outer end of the bell curve. There's just one slight issue, and that would be his equipment. Again, while there are some killers who vary their victim type, there aren't many who vary the genders in which they hunt. It does happen, but not too often. On June 24th, 1988, decomposed body parts con consisting of arms and legs belonging to a woman 
were found dumped along Massachusetts Route 78 in Warwick, Massachusetts. That's less than a mile from the New Hampshire border. The entire body was believed to have been dismembered. The head and torso were never found and are believed to have been disposed of elsewhere. Investigators ruled the death a homicide, and the victim was described as white, average height, with an athletic type of body. The woman's identity is still unknown, and the homicide remains unsolved. This is a little bit late for our killer, but it's possible that, she, that he may have killed in between the Agnew killing and this one. The biggest argument against it, however, is the dismemberment. We haven't seen this behavior from the Connecticut River Valley killer before or since, at least not that we're aware of. And that's kind of an issue. It's possible that we haven't found the remains of some of the other individuals the Connecticut River Valley chose to go after. But for the most part, he went after people who would be missed. He chose victims who would be identified. Um, some serial killers will choose prostitutes because they are some of the least likely people to have someone who will file a missing persons report. Um, others will go after homeless people, um, that sort of thing. But our killer did go after people who would be missed. He seems to have wanted to kill people who were part of the community. On July 25th, 1989, 14-year-old Carrie Moss of New Boston, New Hampshire, left her parents' home to visit friends in Goffstown and disappeared. <coughs> Almost exactly two years later, on July 24th, 1991, her skeletal remains were found in a wooded area in New Boston. While her cause of death could not be determined, she was thought to be the victim of a homicide. Carrie Moss is outside of our killer's active period, but it's entirely possible that Carrie is another of his victims. Most of the time, however, a stabbing death does leave marks on the bones, like I said earlier, and this is borne out on his other victims. The cause of death could not be determined for Carrie. It's not perfect, but it does suggest another killer. Um, so those are all the known and suspected victims of the Connecticut River Valley Killer. Um, in just a second, we're going to talk about suspects. All right, who done it? Well, for one thing, we know it wasn't Schaefer. For, we know that the age range was too wide, uh, and the victims were all too old for his preferences. Um, he was a preferential offender and he went after young girls just on the, just on the right side of puberty. Um, for another thing, Schaefer was documentably in prison. Uh, there are three generally accepted main suspects in the case. The first was a former army helicopter pilot who was in the area and who matched the description given by the lone survivor. Uh, his name was Michael Nicolau, and he lived 
for at least part of our period in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Uh, that's right near Interstate 91, which goes right through the Connecticut River Valley. Um, he has a very violent history, starting with being a suspect in the murder of his first wife, and then ending in the murder of his second wife and stepdaughter, before finally committing suicide in Florida in 2005. So, he clearly has issues with women, uh, which isn't really unusual with serial killers, in case you hadn't noticed. Um, yeah, he's a decorated uh, war veteran. Um, he ran a porn shop. <laughs> you know... I kind of didn't want to bring up the, the veteran thing because it really bugs me when people use someone's time in the service and or their PTSD as, you know, well, obviously he was going to be a serial killer if he has PTSD. No. <laughs> you know, I've I spent most of my childhood surrounded by Vietnam veterans and none of them went on to become serial killers. Not a single one. Um, now watch, I'm going to open my local paper from back home. Uh, the thing is, being a violent man with woman issues doesn't make you a serial killer. Um, the issue, the, the individual wasn't even living in the area when the first three victims were killed. He was documentably living in Virginia. Um, my initial intention was, in fact... To avoid naming him here, uh, because while he's done some terrible things, um, he still has living family, uh, to include a son, who I didn't think needed to be re-traumatized. And the actual Connecticut River Valley victims don't get helped by bringing some random guy into it. Um, that said, I found some recent information that more clearly ties him into one of the other suspects. Um, that said, the state police do not consider him a viable suspect. I'm going to go ahead and assume that they have access to more information that when a random, a random author can dig up on the internet over beers, but there is a lot of circumstantial evidence. Suspect number two is a guy named Albert Tallman. I'm willing to name him because he confessed to a very similar crime, uh, although he later, in, in the same area at the same time, I have to add, uh, although he later recanted his confession and was acquitted. Uh, Tallman knows the area well, and well enough to have found places to leave the bodies that they wouldn't be disturbed until they were pretty well decomposed. Um, he had lived in the same town since sir, as several of the victims. In 1996, he was convicted of sexual offenses against a child and incarcerated for failure to comply with sex offender requirements. He was released in October of 2010. No physical or circumstantial evidence connects 
Tallman to the Connecticut River Valley Slayers. Um, it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, I'm willing to name him here because he confessed to some crimes that were disturbingly similar to the cases under discussion. Uh, but false confessions do happen all the time. Um, and finally, we have a gentleman by the name of Gary Westover, who confessed to having played a part in the crimes to his uncle, who was a retired sheriff's deputy in Grafton County. According to Westover, who was a paraplegic, three friends picked him up in his wheelchair and they went out for a night of partying. This party, according to Westover, culminated in the abduction and murder of Barbara Agnew. Um, recent information, or at least recent to me, and it was published this year, has shown one of those friends to have been Michael Nicolau. Westover's uncle provided the information to law enforcement, as well as to his wife and daughter. Um, courts would still refer to this as hearsay evidence. The uncle claimed law enforcement was uninterested in what he had to say, uh, probably because it couldn't really be corroborated or proven in court. Um, Westover died in 1998. His uncle died in 2006. One of Westover's aunts spoke with Agnew's sister and gave her the name of one of Westover's friends, who seems to have sounded familiar to her. That said, there has been no link proven between Westover or anyone connected to Westover and the crime, um, with a little bit of an exception being, that exception being Nicolau. Um, so those are the three people who are considered suspects. Uh, in a second, we're going to talk about the the biggest similarity between the Connecticut River Valley Killer and Gary Shaver. All right, the Connecticut River Valley Killer left a survivor behind, much like Gary Schaefer. Um, this survivor's name is Jane Borkowski, and she was seven months pregnant at the time of the attack. The attacker, who fits the description of Michael Nicolau, approached Jane under the pretext of thinking she had beaten up his girlfriend. I say it's a pretext because she had, he said she had mass plates when they were very clearly New Hampshire plates. Um, now, before you think he let her go because of her pregnancy or the power of motherhood or something bizarre like that, let me point out, he stabbed her 27 times and left her to die in a, desert, in a deserted parking lot. He didn't let her go. He, you know, he intended to kill her. You know, her, preg her status as a pregnant person had nothing to do with it. Um, she, mani she managed to get back to her car. She was in shock. She drove to a friend's house for help. 
she had the presence of mind to notice her attacker's vehicle slowing down at the house where she was stopping for help. Jane survived. I have no idea how. Just the power of her own awesome. Um, she had a severed jugular vein, two collapsed lungs, a kidney laceration, and severed tendons in her knees and her thumb. Um, her baby lived, even though she appears to have been later diagnosed with a mild case of cerebral palsy. I am trying to imagine what kind of willpower it must have taken her to accomplish that. I can't fathom it. Um, I guess that we never really know what we're capable of until we're in that situation, and I am very, very happy to never find out. Um, I'm happy to just step back and shake my head in amazement and wonder. Um, she's just kind of one of those, she and the 17-year-old girl from before, they, they're just kind of these, they, they're real-life versions of those heroic New England women who just kind of show up and save the day and you know you hear about them in like your fifth grade history book um you know who kind of just are able to tough it out through the worst of everything and um the history here is just full of strong steady individuals who just find a way to pull through even when it seems impossible you know and that's that's these two women we still don't know who it was um she Jane Morkowski did give a description of her attacker and that description fit Michael Michalow um and as I mentioned he had some kind of a connection with Gary Westover, who confessed to one of the crimes. Uh, Jane identified Nicolau in a photo lineup. Um, but Nicolau wasn't even in New England for the beginning of this whole cycle of murders. So I'm not even sure where to go with that. So why is the Connecticut River Valley Killer so unique? What makes him fit in so well into the New England landscape? One of the most striking aspects of the case to me is how central the river is. Um, if you've spent much time in New England, you know, you can get anywhere from anywhere in a very short period of time. Um, if you've read the Ginsburg book, the river shows up in almost every scene. Um, we usually think of New England as being more controlled by the sea. Um, but our lakes and rivers are always there, and they're a force to be reckoned with. They spill over if they think we're forgetting about them. 
They freeze over, waiting for the unsuspecting to put a foot in the wrong place. The bodies are always found in these remote wooded places you can find all over the region, usually still unmapped. Um, the Connecticut River Valley covers a lot of territory. The Connecticut River cuts a path from a small lake 300 yards south of the U.S.-Canada border in Pittsburgh, New Hampshire, and it goes all the way down to Long Island Sound. The river has provided transportation and power for a wide variety of industries um, throughout that whole region. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, those industries have provided the, the backbone for the New England economy, at least in western New England, for more than a century. Um, these towns are typical inland New England towns. The people work very hard. Um, Beatrice Kudermarsh, uh, who is 16 years old, you know, she had a very... She, have you ever seen how hard nurse's aid works? Um, that's, a, that's an incredibly demanding job. And she was keeping her grades up. And she was helping around the house at her boyfriend's parents' place. Um, several of the victims were nurses. Uh, that's another demanding job. Um, Eva Morse, who was a single mother at a young age, worked herself ragged to support her daughter, who, by all accounts, she absolutely adored. And after everything, the people of the Connecticut River Valley moved forward. I don't know about on. I don't think you move on from having two serial killers back-to-back -back right in your backyard. Um, but you keep on going. We still don't know who the Connecticut River Valley Killer was. And for that matter, we don't necessarily know that it was just one person. <coughs> Excuse me. The person who attacked Jane Borkowski fits the description of Michael Nicolau. Um, who has a connection with Gary Westover, who confessed to one of the crimes. Um, but like I said, Nicolau wasn't even in New England for the beginning of the, the crimes. I think it's certainly very possible that there might have been more than one killer at work. I'm not a criminologist, so don't hold me to this. But it would definitely explain the difference between the earlier killings and the murder of, say, Linda Moore and Barbara Agnew. Maybe these killers were working together, like, say, the friends in Westover's confession. Because remember, he didn't say that there was only himself and Nicolau. There were two other guys in that car. Um, maybe they were working separately. Maybe they just knew about each other. Or maybe there was only one the whole time, and none of the guys who have been suspected so far had anything at all to do with it. This is still an open investigation. And there is no statute of limitations on murder. So, if you're listening and you're the person who did it, um, I don't know, confess. Alright, I don't have any really interesting anecdotes about the area. 
Um, I've been through there. Um, the leaves are pretty. I did check into the demographics around here for another project, and the region is something like 98% white. <laughs> I was born and raised in an area that is approximately 50% white and 50% not white, so I can't even wrap my head around a place that's almost entirely one race. I just can't do it. I'm not sure if that has anything to do with the crimes or not, because I'm not a sociologist, but it did really stand out for me. And it does tell us that the killer is almost certainly white, because someone who is not would have really sparked everybody's attention. Um, I think that part of the reason that the Connecticut River Valley killer stands out so strongly in the mind isn't just because of his brutality. I think that it's got a lot to do with the fact that he got away with it. It's like he just slunk out of the shadows or maybe crawled out of the river and crawled right back in. As with Jack the Ripper, we'll probably be able to speculate for a hundred years about who did it, but we'll never be able to prove it either way. And that both terrifies and frightens us and fascinates us. Um, that just about does it for me this week. Last call is still a little ways away, but... My pine's just about empty. You can probably tell from my voice that my pine's empty. Um, <laughs> so you'll have to excuse me. Um, if you have any cases you want to talk about, feel free to drop me a line. Um, in the meantime, grab yourself another round and stay safe.